Divergence, the podcast miniseries. Welcome back to the Divergence podcast. I'm so glad you've joined us today for this, our fifth episode in this 11-part miniseries, uh, in which we're kind of building a case uh, as we examine the Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. I'm really excited that you've joined us today because we've got a couple controversial topics that we're going to touch on as we move forward in our establishment of a New Testament baseline. So um, quickly, before we move on, I want to remind you, if you've been enjoying this podcast, uh, and I've been getting some great comments, so thank you for that, but please, uh, if you would, help me out by by, uh, giving a a rating to this podcast in whatever platform you're on, just to help spread the word, help, help to grow the podcast, since we are pretty brand new here. Um, if you want any more details about me or the podcast, my name's R.L. Solberg, by the way. My friends call me Rob. Uh, you can check out rlsolberg.com. Head over to that podcast page on my website, and you'll learn everything you need to know. So what we're doing in this mini-series, for those of you who aren't aware, is just going through and examining the Jewish-Christian relations from the time of Jesus up through the year 325 when the Council of Nicaea was held. And we're actually doing that in three stages. So we're in stage one right now where we're looking at the New Testament baseline, and we're gonna, we put together last episode a five-point framework about the New Testament and what it teaches about how Christians are to regard Jews and Judaism. Uh, Today we're going to look at two theological markers that we're going to add to that baseline, and we'll be done with the baseline. Then we're going to move on to stage two, which is going to be looking at the early Christian writings from the first, second, third, and and early fourth centuries. And then stage three, the final stage, we're going to take a look at the Council of Nicaea and see what Uh, the state of Christendom was like at the end of the Council of Nicaea, and compare that back to our New Testament baseline. So did Christian theology veer off course? Uh, Were Christian attitudes towards Jews and Judaism, did that change at all during that time period? That's what kind of we're after. So in the last episode, we began putting together our New Testament baseline. We reviewed all the New Testament writings, which we had previously looked at in the episodes before that, and a five-point framework sort of emerged from the biblical data. And we established that five-point framework, but we also want to add to that, and this is what we're going to do today— we're going to turn to the New Testament teachings on two somewhat uh, controversial Jewish-Christian matters, um, which should make for a pretty interesting discussion. So I'm calling these theological markers. There's two theological markers that we're going to be looking at. So the first is the Sabbath versus the Lord's Day. Are Christians required to gather on the last day of the week, on Saturday, in obedience to the Torah commandments about the Sabbath, which that legal requirement said at the last day of the week? Or can Christians gather on the first day of the week on Sunday as the Lord's Day? And the second issue we're going to look at is going to be um, Passover versus Easter. So are believers in Jesus, are we supposed to be keeping Passover or Easter or maybe both? These issues are discussed in the New Testament and in the writings of the early church and at the Council of Nicaea. So they're going to help really, um, they're going to serve us as these trackable markers that are going to help reveal the degree and uh, the nature of anti-Jewish impact on Christian theology through this historical era that we're looking at. So let's dive in. We'll start with the Sabbath Lord's Day marker. That'll be our marker number one. Now, the discussion of the Sabbath in the New Testament, as I found out when I finally just really dug in and did some in studying and research on it, it can really be a tricky thing. I mean, you know, what does it say? 
What does it not say? How, how do the two Testaments treat the Sabbath? So as we get into this, I'm just going to ask you to be patient and embrace the nuance as we kind of work our way through the, the many facets that we see of, of the Sabbath found in Scripture. And we're going to try to come to a, a biblical understanding of this issue and set that out as our marker. So now the Sabbath is alluded to twice in the Old Testament before it becomes part of the law given at Mount Sinai. Of course, we all know the Sabbath was the fourth of the Ten Commandments, but even prior to that, it's mentioned twice. So first it's mentioned, or actually alluded to, as the seventh day uh, in Genesis 2-2, as the day that God rested from his creation of the world. And then later, as Moses led the Israelites through the wilderness right after the exodus from Egypt and they were wandering around, the Sabbath was then commanded, and this is before the law was given, the Sabbath was commanded in connection with God's gift of manna. So we read about that in, in Exodus 16. So this, this declaration included a mandate with it. So God said, on, and this is Exodus 16, 26, six days you shall gather it, meaning manna, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So this suggests that there was already among Israel an understanding of this idea of the seventh day, which again would have come from Genesis 2-2 and the, the cadence of creation. But it was given here as a commandment, as a, as a test of Israel's obedience, which she promptly failed. As we read about here in Exodus 16, starting at verse 27, it says this, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So those were the pre-law discussions about the Sabbath. And now later at Mount Sinai, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, the legal Sabbath was given to Israel as part of the law of Moses, right? As I mentioned, it's it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. So as such, the, the Old Testament in includes a lot of prescriptive teachings about the Sabbath, right? Um, Israel's toward, told to, to remember it and keep it holy, to do no work, um, to carry no load, to make your offerings— do not desecrate it. And then during the intertestamental period, that, that roughly 400 or so year period of history, after the Old Testament was closed, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, and before Jesus arrived and we have the New Testament, there was this 400-year period, and, and during that time, the Sabbath took on a, a more legalistic interpretation. So in an attempt to what they say build fences around the Torah— Jewish teachers started developing um, extra-biblical forms of activities that they would forbid on the Sabbath. So, so these included things like, you know, you can't walk more than 1,000 cubits, or you can't draw water into any container, or wear perfume, or that sort of thing. So this was the view of the Sabbath that was held in the first century culture into which Jesus was then born. So we've got the Sabbath as a legal commandment and the law of Moses, and on top of that, or around it, we might say, the Jewish teachers had added a bunch of extra man-made mandates to it. So now, interestingly, when we get to the New Testament, although nine of the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai are either repeated verbatim or, you know, explicitly endorsed in the New Testament— the commandment about the Sabbath isn't, and I find that very interesting. Matter of fact, if you get my book, Divergence, Appendix B, at the back of the book, 
um, shows the Ten Commandments as they're referenced, referenced in the New Testament. So I actually list out just in this big table all the places that the, that the Ten Commandments are repeated or endorsed or whatever in, in the New Testament. And there's a significant difference between how the Old and the New Testaments place their emphasis on the Sabbath, right? So the difference that we find between the two it's nowhere clearly explained. So it really requires us to dig into the text and try to understand what's going on. And of course, you know, since both Testaments are part of inspired Holy Scripture, we can't just write off the discrepancy that I'm going to explain here in a second. That can't just be written off as, oh, it was an oversight, or, you know, that was an accident. I mean, we have to believe, if we believe in the inspired nature of Scripture, that that this difference is significant, right? And under the new covenant that Jesus ushered in, the, the emphasis on Shabbat, it must have shifted for a reason. Why do they repeat the other nine, but they don't repeat the Sabbath, right? So we could maybe say here in a sense, and I'm kind of walking into exploratory area here, but we could say in a sense there are two different versions or hmm, two stages or two aspects let's say, of the Sabbath, right? There's this universal aspect of the Sabbath, which is tied to creation, as we've seen. And this aspect, you know, predates the law of Moses. So we could almost argue that that it should be viewed as a, a universal command, or a universal rhythm, you know, the, the six days of work and the seventh day we rest, right? Um, and in that case, you know, since God gave that Sabbath, that we'll call that the universal aspect of the Sabbath, before the law of Moses... The Sabbath, in that sense, would presumably also outlast the law as well. So in other words, if we believe the law of Moses was fulfilled by Jesus and no longer binding, then the legal, at least the legal side of the Sabbath requirements, have also come to an end. Yet the universal aspect of the Sabbath continues. So if we look at like Paul's letter to the Colossians, right, he seems to oppose the legal compliance the legal keeping of the Sabbath here in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And then he describes those things, for example, the legal requirement of the Sabbath in verse 17 as, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this is Paul's message to what was primarily a Gentile church, telling them, hey, don't let anyone disqualify you based on whether or not you keep the, the Jewish legal observances, such as the Sabbath. It's, that's actually specifically mentioned in this list. And because he, he listed the Sabbath among other Jewish legal requirements, I mean, it's possible that Paul was really only referring to the legal aspect, the legal observance of the Sabbath, as required by the law of Moses, and not to the pre-existing, the, the universal aspect or directive. So, so while the keeping of the legal Sabbath is not explicitly overturned in this passage, it's, it's clearly being taught as optional. Or as I like to say, about really about all the Jewish traditions, keeping the Sabbath is being taught as permitted but not required. And Paul's position on the Sabbath here in Colossians really aligns with what we read about in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. So this is Acts 15 verses 1 through 29 where it talks about this council 
Paul was at the council, Peter, James, and, and other leaders were there, and they all came together to talk about there were Judaizers around trying to, trying to encourage or, or promote the idea that Gentiles were required to be circumcised and they were required to keep the law of Moses. So this council gathered together to kind of talk about what should be required of new Gentile believers. So they talked about it. You can read through it. It's really quite a fascinating discussion. And there's debate whether were they really talking about the Gentiles needing to keep the law of Moses as a matter of salvation, or is it just as a matter of obedience? But either way, it, the, the outcome is the same. Um, they wrote a letter to all the Gentile churches indicating their decision, which James, uh, who was the head of Jer- the Jerusalem church, said that it was endorsed by the Holy Spirit. And so we read here in Acts 15... 28 and 29, this is the end of the letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. So in this passage, the New Testament, that the, the apostles here in Jerusalem are unambiguously teaching that the observance of Sabbath is not required, nor are the feasts or the circumcision and, and so on. Now, that said, the Sabbath clearly still holds great significance in the New Testament. I mean, in Luke 4, 16, we see Jesus publicly revealed his ministry on the Sabbath, and he also taught and he, and he healed and even worked on the Sabbath. And we also see the early Christians regularly gathering in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So while the the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, kept the Sabbath, it was also a frequent matter of contentions, especially between Jesus and the religious leaders. I mean, in the New Testament, the Sabbath is actually referred to most often as a source of controversy. More than half of the time any New Testament author mentions the Sabbath, it's as a, as a source of conflict between Jesus and the, and the Jewish religious leaders. As a matter of fact, and, I, and I've looked through this and assessed the biblical data on this, in 100% of the passages where Yeshua, where Jesus is teaching about the Sabbath, he's clashing with the Jewish religious leaders over it. So, I mean, look at the, the incident in Mark 2. This is where the Pharisees are chastising Jesus, you know, they're saying, how dare you allow your disciples to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus says this, Mark 2, 27 and 28, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. What a cool enigmatic statement. So what does that mean? What can we glean from that? Well, I think there are at least two points that we can pull away from that that will help inform our, our discussion today. And, and the first is that the extra-biblical prohibitions that were introduced by the Pharisees that I mentioned uh, in, the new, in the intertestamental period, they had distorted God's original intention for the Sabbath. And so in this passage, we see Jesus telling those Jewish leaders that their Sabbath regulations are man-made additions to what God requires, and therefore he's telling them those aren't mandatory, those aren't required, right? In other words, Jesus is defending the actions of his disciples as being uh, consistent with the true intention of Sabbath. And he's using this opportunity to really clarify the original purpose of the Sabbath as it was given in the law of Moses. And secondly, Jesus' declaration that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, it brings to mind, you know, Genesis 2-2 and the role of the seventh day in creation. And it suggests that the Sabbath was actually 
given to humanity not as an essential mandate to follow, but more as a blessing, as a, as a holy rhythm, so to speak, of, of rest and restoration, you know, that God first modeled in the process of creating everything. And it also brings to mind Jesus' response to the Jews that were persecuting him for healing a man on the Sabbath. In John 5, 17, we read, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So this would have been a really powerful statement, especially as heard by the Jewish teachers of the law and leaders, because in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, in the law of Moses, it's clearly defined that there shall be no work done on the Sabbath. And yet here Jesus is saying, my father and I are working today on the Sabbath. So this tells us something really important, and that is because God himself works on the Sabbath, That means that doing so, that working on the Sabbath, cannot be inherently wrong or sinful because God wouldn't do something inherently wrong or sinful. So therefore, the Sabbath requirements that were given in the law of Moses, just like the dietary restrictions and the temple laws, those shouldn't be viewed as a universal moral directive for all people at all times. Instead, I think they were given by God for two reasons. First, to set Israel apart from all the nations around her and mark her as God's own people, right? So it's not saying it's inherently wrong to work on the Sabbath, but what we're saying is, and this actually bore out throughout history, if the entire nation of Israel on the last day of the week rests from all work, what an amazing statement of a people who are different and set apart from all the other nations around them who are working seven days a week. But secondly, also, the Sabbath requirements were given as a test of Israel's obedience under the law. And that leaves us with a sort of attention that we need to... There's two biblical teachings. One is that the Sabbath is a, a directive that's tied to creation, which predated and transcends the law of Moses, right? And then at the same time, we also have, on the other hand, that it's not a requirement for Christians. We read that in Colossians 2. We just looked at that. So we need to hold those two things in tension. And by the way, I should mention that, you know, according to Jewish law, non-Jews, Gentiles, they weren't in the covenant and they never have been, speaking of the Sinai covenant. You know, they were bound by the what they call the Noahide commandments, but not by the Torah of Moses. And then to add another ingredient into this stew that we're putting together, this theological stew regarding the Sabbath, we can also look at the author of Hebrews who gives us some additional insight. So he's explaining in Hebrews 3 how the Israelites failed to enter into God's rest. Um, and therefore, in Hebrews 4.1, quote, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And therefore, he's teaching that believers are now able to enter into a true Sabbath rest. The, the Lexham Bible Dictionary says this, quote, Hebrews 4.11 points to a future rest for those who are obedient. The passage emphasizes the Old Testament principles that God's Sabbath is based on abstinence from work, and we see that in Hebrews 4.10, based on rest, we see that in Hebrews 4.3, and tied to creation, we see that in Hebrews 4.4, and a call for obedience, and that's in Hebrews 4, 6. So it's very interesting. Take, take a look through the entire chapter of Hebrews 4 to add to either your clarity or confusion, <laughs> depending on how you read it, about the Sabbath. And, and there's actually even more ingredients we're going to throw in our stew here. So another bit of scriptural evidence that we really need to consider is this idea that we know that God's giving of the Sabbath under the law of Moses, it was given as a sign of the Sinai Covenant. 
Um, and that was a covenant that was ultimately broken by Israel. We read about that in Jeremiah 31, 32, uh, and in Hebrews 8, 9. And that covenant was replaced by a new and a superior covenant in Jesus. So if the old covenant has passed away, which we read about in Hebrews 8, 13, and then in you know Jeremiah 31, we're told that the new covenant would not be like the old covenant. If that old covenant has passed away and the new covenant is now enacted, it stands to reason that the signs given of that old covenant have passed away as well. In fact, the author of Hebrews indicates that the legal Sabbath rest, which, which Paul referred to again as a shadow of things to come in Colossians 2, has been replaced by a new and a superior rest in Jesus. Again, this is from Hebrews 4. So because of that, I think it's not... It's not unreasonable to conclude that, you know, just like the Sinai covenant, the Sabbath commandment, at least the form given in the law of Moses, the the legal Sabbath commandment, wasn't intended to last forever. And here's what's interesting is that outside of the law of Moses, if we look at the Sabbath outside of the law of Moses, the only commandment that God gave regarding the Sabbath was to a specific people, Israel, and a specific place, when they were in the wilderness. So the Israelites were told, as we looked at, not to gather manna on the seventh day of the week as they wandered in the wilderness. Again, that's Exodus 16. So this mandate obviously wasn't universal, and it's not binding today because we aren't Israel and we aren't wandering around in the wilderness. So it makes you wonder, you know, maybe there's a transcendent essence of Sabbath that's intended in Scripture, that's intended by God. This idea of, of resting in God at regular intervals as a gift or a blessing given by God. Um, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says this, quote, The Scriptures relate that God gave his people the Sabbath as an opportunity to serve him, and as a reminder of two great truths in the Bible, creation and redemption. So we've seen how the New Testament really took on a new perspective of the Sabbath, as, especially as a legal obligation. So what do we make then of the day that it's observed, right? In, the Jewish Sabbath was legally required to be kept on the last day of the week. And yet, In the New Testament, we see indications that believers had already begun gathering on the first day of the week, right? In fact, actually, many early believers were were Jewish, and so they would observe both a Saturday Sabbath and the Lord's Day on the first day of the the week with their fellow Christians. So busy weekends for those guys. Um, But so we've got this idea in the New Testament, of course, why, why do they call it the Lord's Day? It's because, you know, the most important thing in the history of humanity happened on the first day of the week, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. But let's take a look at some of the evidence we find in the New Testament about gathering on the first day of the week. Um, so we've got, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul is reminding the church in Corinth to contribute money to the Jerusalem church, quote, on the first day of every week, close quote. So the Baker Encyclopedia notes this, quote, why Sunday? Obviously, the first day of the week had taken on a special significance among Christians in Corinth before Paul wrote this letter, around A.D. 55 or 56. And he makes it clear that the observance was not merely local, see 1 Corinthians 16.1. There was some special Sunday event that would make it easy for the Christians to remember their obligations to the poor. Now, this passage on its own obviously doesn't prove anything, but it's just the beginning. We're going to try to string a few things together here. So, secondly, we want to look at... Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. So it's a letter to the same church. 
And there's a passage here in chapter nine where Paul is, is encouraging this continued charitable giving, which, which again, in his first letter we saw uh, was a Sunday thing. Um, and he adds in his second letter, here's Second Corinthians 9:12. Paul adds this, "For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God." So the clue about Sunday gatherings is a little more buried in this passage, but it's definitely there. So in this passage, the Greek word that was rendered as service is liturgia, which from the English word, the English word liturgy comes from that Greek word. And so, you know, the word broadly can mean service as it's translated here, but in other areas of the New Testament, it's translated as ministry or offering or worship. And even more than that, now we're going to start stringing things together here. In the book of Acts, Luke describes a Sunday gathering in Troas. I'm sure you remember this story. You know, Paul goes on speaking for many hours, and some kid named Eutychus nods off to sleep and falls out a third-story window. Okay, so that's Acts 27 through 12, and this, this brief passage actually reveals several things to us. First of all, that a group of Christian believers had, quote, assembled to break bread, in verse 7, which is a phrase that's commonly used in the New Testament to refer to the Lord's Supper. And they were there to listen to Paul preach, and it was the first day of the week, it was on a Sunday. And so really, Scripture here is revealing that very early in the Christian church, there were Sunday gatherings where offerings were taken, where sermons were preached, and the Lord's Supper was celebrated. So these, these modern Sunday traditions that we see around us today are all grounded not in the early Christians, but in the Bible itself. And as they say on the infomercials, but wait, that's not all. So we've also got another reference to Sunday in the book of Revelation. So Revelation 1.10, John writes this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now again, this verse by itself maybe doesn't mean much, but... This is actually the only use of the phrase of the Lord's Day in the New Testament. And as we string these things together, we see that even though the text here doesn't explicitly tie the Lord's Day to the first day of the week, but yet we do have extra biblical evidence that the earliest Christians were commonly using this phrase of the Lord's Day to refer to Sunday. And we're going to look at this more in, in the upcoming episodes when we dive into the to the early writings of the church. But this phrase, the Lord's Day, is actually found in an anonymous document called the Didache, which is this ancient Christian writing. The scholars think it could have been in circulation as early as the 60s. So it would have been in circulation at the same time the apostles were still alive and writing. And, and according to the Didache, Sunday was the day of the week that Christians would devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so the phrase, the Lord's Day, was, was most likely in use by Christians before John wrote the book of Revelation, which would have been in the mid-90s. Okay, so we've, we've set a bunch of things on the table and strung a few things together. Let's take a step back and kind of recap here. So the Sabbath, at a minimum, it takes on a new understanding in the New Testament, right? Now, Scripture, we have, to, we have to admit this, Scripture nowhere explicitly overturns the keeping of the weekly Sabbath. And nowhere do we read uh, anything explicitly saying that the Sabbath, the legal Sabbath, has come to an end. And at the same time, the New Testament teaches that the legal Sabbath observance isn't required anymore. Okay, so moving on regarding the Lord's Day, as we just looked at, we, there are hints here in, the, in Scripture itself that the early church had begun gathering on a Sunday. And we further know that, that Scripture neither requires nor prohibits gathering 
on the first day of the week, right? So the so the earliest Christians modeled the nature of Christian gatherings for us, right? Acts 2.42 tells us, quote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which sounds an awful like our modern day church services. And as we've seen, we have good reason to believe that even the earliest Christians had begun gathering on the first day of the week. So what we can gather here from scripture is that on the matter of which day you know, or how often even we need to gather together, Christians have been given freedom in Christ to choose for themselves how they want to express their faith. So I think we have enough information here that we can establish a teaching on marker number one, this idea of the Sabbath versus the Lord's Day. What does the New Testament teach? And I think we can sum that up in in two points. Number one, keeping the Jewish observance of the Sabbath on the last day of the week is permitted, but no longer required. And then number two, gathering on the first day of the week is also permitted, but not required. Marker number two is Passover and Easter. And to the Jewish people, there is one sacred spring season. It's called Pesach or Passover as we know it in English. And it was in the midst of this season that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And not only did his death coincide with the with the Passover sacrifice, but he was resurrected on the Jewish day of first fruits, which is called Yom HaBikurim. And 50 days later, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we know as Pentecost, happened at the Jewish Feast of Weeks, also known as Shavuot. So the connection between these super crucial New Testament events and the holy days appointed by God in the Torah Again, we can't look at these sorts of things as just a happenstance or a coincidence. There's a Jewish believer in Jesus, Dr. Moishe Rosen, who, wrote, who writes this in his book, Christ in the Passover. He says this, As God ordered the universe and commanded the seasons of nature, he ordained times and seasons to usher in his plan of salvation for the human race. Israel's feasts of Jehovah portray stages of God's dealing with humanity, which culminate in the completion of the plan of salvation. In fact, Jesus' final meal before his crucifixion, what we know today as the Last Supper, as recorded in the Gospels, that was a Passover Seder. Here was Jesus, a Jewish man, partaking of the Passover Seder with his Jewish disciples. So the connection between Jesus and Passover is important. And it wasn't lost on the Jewish New Testament authors. They, they openly referred to Christ as our Passover lamb. We see that in John 1, in verse 29 and verse 36. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 1 Peter 1, 19 and Revelation 5, 6, 8. So it's a common theme. In fact, this is really cool. In Luke 22, he begins his narrative of the Last Supper with this cool kind of eerie prophecy. He writes this in Luke 22:7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Which is very cool because he's obviously referring literally to the Passover lamb, but also to the figurative Passover lamb, Jesus. So this year I attended a Passover Seder given by a Messianic Jewish family. Unfortunately, I had to attend it remotely because... Thanks, COVID. But it was really amazing to see all the different places and all the different symbols and typologies that point to Christ. Uh, And one place that was really fascinating was in in the serving of the wine. As I think you might know, there's four cups of wine served throughout the progression of the meal. So I'm going to I'm going to actually quote here from Dr. Rosen again from his book, Christ in the Passover. Um, And he points out the significance of the third 
of the four cups of wine that were taken during the meal. He says this, quote, It had two names, the cup of blessing, because it came after the blessing or grace after meals, and the cup of redemption, because it represented the blood of the Paschal Lamb. It was of this cup that Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament or covenant in Matthew 26, 28. And it is this cup of blessing that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah are forever interwoven with the Passover and its symbolism. The Passover lamb spoke of the lamb of God who was to come. The redemption from Egypt foreshadowed the greater redemption that Jesus would bring. So cool. So we clearly can't deny this biblical link between Passover and Christ's sacrifice, right? And God, in his sovereignty, he ordained the shedding of innocent blood as the means through which his people would find salvation from his judgment. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So at the original Passover, this played out, you know, in the 10th plague, which we read about in Exodus 12, where where the blood of the unblemished Passover lamb secured Israel's salvation and, and her freedom from slavery in Egypt. And when God gave Israel this Passover requirement, he knew already that roughly 1,300 years later, a very similar but much more momentous scenario was going to play out in Christ, right? Jesus' innocent blood would be shed as the means through which God's people would find salvation from his judgment and secure their freedom, not from Egypt this time, but from slavery to sin and death. So if you think about the Passover Seder, right, there's wine and there's bread. And when Jesus at the Last Supper broke the bread and drank the wine, he was linking his death, which was just hours away, to Passover. So both Passover and the Lord's Supper commemorate the the shedding of innocent blood for salvation that leads to freedom for God's people. So because Passover was initially given, at least in God's mind, in light of the future Messiah and his saving work on the cross, the original Passover now to us as Christians looking back, it becomes all the more poignant as we see it in Christ. At the same time, though, the inauguration of the new covenant that came through Jesus' blood, Luke twenty-two twenty, meant that the law of Moses, including the Pesach, the Passover requirement, was fulfilled by Jesus. So the legal observance of Passover became, again, permitted, but not required. The original Passover pointed to Christ, and now that he had come, the Lord's Supper is the new Passover, right? And it's even been elevated by the church from an annual commemoration to a regular, even often weekly, at my church it's weekly, observance for God's people to remember that sacrifice. Okay, so what about Easter then? Easter doesn't commemorate the Passover sacrifice, but it commemorates the resurrection, which was really a unique act of God in history. There are maybe some hints and shadows of the resurrection that we find in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. You know, we might see it in the delivery of Noah's family from the flood, or the rescue of Joseph from the pit, or, um, you know, Jonah's three days in a giant fish, those sorts of things. But these aren't prophecies, really. They're more like typological shadows or hints at what might come. And, And as a matter of fact, so all throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and even at the time of Jesus, Jews didn't have an understanding or a belief in a singular resurrection. They did believe in a resurrection of all people at the end of days, right? But they didn't believe in a resurrection or that the Messiah would be resurrected the way he was. So this was really a unique move of God in history. 
So while we might see some of these, you know, these shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, the substance behind those shadows, the real resurrection really has no equivalent in history, but also no clear counterpart in the original Passover story. The actual resurrection was a divine, sovereign, unprecedented move of Yahweh. So God incarnate, as we read about in Philippians 2, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God sent his son to earth to die for our sins once for all, as it says in Hebrews 10.10. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So the resurrection actually validates the sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice. Without it, Christianity falls apart. Paul's really clear about this. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 14, talks about how critical the resurrection is. Here's what it says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. As I said, it's, it's not just the most important event in Christianity. It's the most important event in all of human history. And remarkably, I thought this was amazing, as significant as the resurrection is, there's no command in scripture anywhere to remember the resurrection and keep it holy or anything like that. There's actually no New Testament commands for or against commemorating the resurrection of Christ. So Easter as a celebration or a holy day, it doesn't even show up in scripture. The Christian holiday of Easter was actually a later development of church tradition. It was a man-made holiday. And actually, it's on this basis that, that many people in the Hebrew Roots movement want to reject Easter as a holiday. They say, hey, it was man-made, and therefore it is invalid. God did not require it, so we shouldn't do it. So interestingly, though, the New Testament actually acknowledges the validity of man-made traditions. In John's Gospel, in John 10... The apostle sets up his story with kind of what seems like a minor detail, but it actually reveals something really significant to us. So look at John 10, verses 22 and 23. They say this, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so what's all that about, and why did John include those details? Well, the Feast of Dedication, for you history buffs, probably already know this, but it was established in 164 BC, and what they were celebrating was the purging of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes, a few years earlier, had come in and polluted the temple, right? And this was what we know of as the Maccabean Revolution. So after Judas Maccabeus had driven out the invaders, then they rebuilt the altar, and they cleansed the temple, and they held this big feast of dedication that was celebrating the event of the temple coming back into service. So this feast, this feast of dedication lasted for eight days. Uh, it began on the 25th of the month of Chislu, the Hebrew month of Chislu, but that's, you know, equates to December. And there's much rejoicing and festivity. And if this is starting to sound familiar, there's a good reason for it, because this celebration later became known as the Feast of Lights, or, or what's more commonly called Hanukkah. So while the New Testament doesn't explicitly state it, Jesus, as a Jew at the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, would have undoubtedly been participating in this man-made tradition, the Feast of Dedication. In fact, John, including this particular detail, including the fact 
that Jesus was walking in the temple, um, it's taken by a lot of people, including me, as an indication that the Feast of Dedication was at least one of the reasons that Jesus was even in Jerusalem at that time. He was celebrating this man-made tradition with his Jewish community. So why is that so important? Well, the New Testament is telling us that Jesus participated in man-made traditions that weren't given by God in the Torah. And if Jesus did it, it means we can do it. So this is a this is a biblical precedent that validates Christians like me who choose to commemorate Jesus' resurrection through the man-made tradition of Easter. Now, don't get me started on bunnies and eggs and all that stuff. I'm not talking about the cultural, secular celebration of Easter, right? I'm talking about the celebration, the Christian religious celebration of the resurrection of Christ as observed in Easter services. Okay, so I think we have what we need here to capture a baseline from the New Testament on marker number two, which is our Passover Easter marker. So we can sum up what the New Testament teaches about Passover and Easter in the following three points. Number one, under the New Covenant, the law of Moses, including the Passover obligation, was fulfilled by Jesus. The Lord's Supper is now our Passover, and therefore, number two, The celebration of the Jewish Passover is permitted but not required of Christians, although I would recommend it because I got an awful lot out of the Seder that I attended earlier this year. Um, And number three, the New Testament neither requires nor condemns the celebration of Christ's resurrection. We are given that freedom, but what it does teach is the validity of man-made traditions, at least those that honor God. Okay, so there we have it. It was maybe a little long-winded, but such interesting stuff to dig into. So we now have, in our last episode, we have our five-point biblical framework. And in this episode, we've now established the framework for our theological markers, number one and number two. So now we are ready to take that baseline of the New Testament and move on into the early Christian writings. So we're going to begin that in our next episode. Super fascinating stuff. We're going to be reading some source material and really following the progression of Christian theology and Christian attitudes down through the centuries and see what our ancient ancestors, spiritual ancestors, went through, what they thought, what they taught. And if you're anything like me, you're going to be absolutely impressed with the stuff that they did. So we'll catch you next time on the Divergence Podcast. Remember to check out rlsolberg.com for more information on all this fun stuff we're discussing. And thank you so much for listening in. Shalom. Shalom.